0: Good evening. A scandal in Westminster. No, not the Prime Minister's half-apology. Not the Prime Minister saying he still thought that it was a business event. No, this is a spy for the Chinese Communist Party, found deep at the centre of the Palace of Westminster. Christine Lee, who managed to inveigle herself with Prime Ministers, and in particular with one Labour MP called Barry Gardner, uh, who was in fact employing her son until this morning. Uh, And... The oddest thing about this story to me is it was first being talked about publicly in 2017 and yet nothing appeared to happen. Well, before we get opinion, let's get the facts, including how much money she's given to the Labour Party. And joining me to give us the facts is GB News' home and security editor, Mark White. Mark, good evening.
1: Good evening, Nigel.
0: Let's let's start with the money, shall we?
1: Yes, in terms of the money, uh, this woman has paid, uh, we're told in donations, close to £700,000 over recent years. The vast majority of that money has gone to the senior Labour MP, uh, the former minister under Tony Blair's government frontbencher in Jerry, Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet, uh, Barry Gardner. Now, uh, it has uh, totaled uh, round about half a million pounds that's gone to him. He says that he has not gained... Personally, from any of that money, that he's very angry uh, with what has happened here and that the money was used to fund his parliamentary research. As we'll go on a bit more to what Barry Gardner was saying in a second, but I think... Uh, Just to recap on this, it is very unusual for MI5 to issue this alert, Nigel. It was uh, alerted uh, uh, Parliament this morning. It was uh, distributed to the heads of security, uh, both the Commons and the Lords, uh, then distributed to individual MPs and peers. That's how we uh, got to hear about it. And they accuse this woman, Christine Lee, a solicitor based in London, uh, of being a spy. Now, this is not spying in the sort of traditional way of thinking about it, the James Bond-style stealing of secrets, Uh, but it's this grey area type of espionage that we've come to know of late. Uh, This, according to MI5, attempts to uh, gain influence and to uh, subvert, undermine the democratic process That in itself, very damaging, of course, to a democracy like the UK. Now, in that alert, Nigel, MI5 says that Christine Lee has knowingly engaged in political interference activities on behalf of the United Front Work Department of the Chinese Communist Party. The alert accuses Lee of having facilitated financial donations to serving and aspiring parliamentarians on behalf of of foreign nationals based in Hong Kong and China. Now, one of those who received money, in addition to Barry Gardner, was the... um Uh, the the now head of the uh, Liberal Democrat Party. Uh, So as far as uh, that, but that is tiny uh, that uh, Ed Davey received, I think it was about £5,000 in comparison to the half a million pounds that's gone to Barry Gardner. Now, Barry Gardner has been speaking this evening, says he's very angry about this, the way in which he's been used. Uh, He says he's been transparent throughout, though, that he had spoken to MI5 years ago about this because of the concerns that he had. Well, that begs the obvious question, doesn't it, Nigel? If you were so concerned that you thought you had to speak to our domestic spy agency, why on earth were you taking hundreds of thousands of pounds from this woman?
0: Yep, taking money and continuing to employ Christine Lee's son. Yes, I thought the fact that he said he'd been liaising with the security services for years was astonishing. It was virtually an admission that he knew He was working with a Chinese spy. I'm absolutely astonished by the whole thing. Uh, Mark, tell me, has there been any official response from the Labour Party on this?
1: Uh, from the Labour Party, I haven't seen so far. From the Home Secretary, yes. Uh, she ha- she says that she understands people uh, will be understandably very concerned about this. Uh, she is liaising, uh, as she does throughout, uh, with the uh, domestic uh, uh, spy agency MI5 uh, and with the Metropolitan Police. Uh, action is taken when appropriate. Uh, But there has been no action, as far as we know, that has been taken against Christine Lee, despite uh, those in Parliament being told that she had indulged in illegal activities. And you mentioned, of course, her son. Well, her son was employed right up until this morning by Barry Gardner, until he said he got a visit by the head of security for the Commons and two MI5 agents, then called him up and asked for his resignation. He also stresses that the money that was given to him by Christine Lee did not finance her son's employment as a researcher uh, looking after his diary and his bookings.
0: Extraordinary. Mark White, thank you very much indeed. I have to tell you, folks, I should say I'm astonished, I'm outraged, I'm appalled, but I'm not any of those things. I'm not the least bit surprised. I believe we have been far too complacent when it comes to China. I believe too many of our political class actually want to cosy up to China because they think that'll guarantee their futures financially and in many other ways. Agree with me, disagree with me. My audience question tonight to you is, are we too complacent about China. Please let me know what you think. You could also, of course, send in your Barrage the Farage questions for the end of the show. Let's get some analysis on this. And I'm joined now by Dr Alan Mendoza, founder and the executive director of the Henry Jackson Society. Alan, as I say, I, I, I mean, you deal with these issues. You're, 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 you're a group dedicated to genuine human rights. Um, I'm going to guess that you're not that surprised either. No, I, I'm not surprised, because this has been an
2: obvious sort of route for Chinese influence for some time. I mean, we, we've known for years, obviously, the Russians have been employed in this sort of tactic. Yeah. We, we've got that. That bit we've understood. We were always wary of, of Russian money. But actually, Chinese money, um, for some reason, there was a blind eye turn to it. The assumption, if you remember, you know, even as little as five years ago, was, oh, no, China's our partner, our friend. They wouldn't That's uh, right. do anything beastly to us. Well, of course they would. Here's a Chinese Communist Party.
0: Well, actually, about. I mean, if you think back to 20- 2010, 2011, the early days of the Cameron-Osborne government, I mean, Osborne as Chancellor was saying China's our future. Well, it was a golden age. It was a new deal. It was everything happening in that sort of way. But anyone who
2: took any look at how the Chinese operated domestically would understand immediately that their aim would be to subvert our politics in whatever way they can do uh, in order to get their, yeah. their ends and means uh, uh, through Parliament or whatever else. And that's what they've been doing. And they've been doing it for many years. All this time, we've been debating, is China a friend or foe? Mm. The answer has been staring us in the face, they're a foe. Tell me, as the Henry Jackson Society, what needs to happen now? Well, first, there needs to be a root and branch look at what, are, what is going on in Parliament in terms of other potential agents of influence. It is unlikely there is any one of them in this way. There will be numerous other uh, groupings or numerous other individuals who will in some way, shape or form, be connected in the same way with the Chinese authorities or with individuals who are connected yeah. to the Chinese authorities. So that has to happen. There needs to be a proper investigation. Secondly, uh, you, you mentioned, of course, you know Barry Gardner here. Barry Gardner's got lots of questions to answer. Yeah. Uh, you raised some of them respondent raised more of them. But he should really refer himself, shouldn't he, to the Standards Commissioner uh, to, to work out exactly what's gone on here. He says the money wasn't used for uh, staffers. Well, what was it used for then? Uh, was there any influence on international trade policy in the Labour Party?
0: All these questions... need was to be. Was policy asked. debated? Was Hong Kong... Disca- I mean, there's so All many the questions, questions. here. I agree with you.
2: And, of, and those things are important because they
0: reflect the potential penetration
2: of Chinese agents of influence into domestic British political discussions at the very highest
0: level around the shadow cabinet table. Potentially. Almost back to the old days of the Cambridge ring and the, and the, and, and, oh. and, and, and the Russian spies. Indeed, and, I mean, look. I you mean, know. you're suggesting this runs far deeper than just this case.
2: It has to, because it's unlikely that the Chinese would have put all their eggs into one basket. And, you know, I'm quite prepared to accept that people didn't quite know what they were dealing with, but they should have had suspicions, they
0: should have realised that uh, there was a problem here, Uh, we needed to be more careful. Alan, finally, there was an article published in the Times in 2017, a photograph of Barry Gardner and Christine Lee, and the headline was, questions about Chinese money. Why has nothing happened? Well, I think it's partly because people
2: were scared of rocking the boat uh, with regard to China and trade policy and such like. Don't forget, the Chinese mm. act very brutally when uh, people are accused of various tasks. Remember the Canadians who were held hostage uh, in China because of business you yeah. know, kind of disputes? Unfortunately, this the vindictive and brutal regime that will seek to punish those who, who go against it. So it, there's often a tendency to, uh, to, to run away from these issues. The reality is, as we've now seen, there are national security uh, implications if you don't, and we have to do that.
0: Appeasement doesn't work. Alan Mendoza, thank you very much indeed. So, the Office of National Statistics this morning put out some figures about the UK population. They estimate that net migration will run at 200,000 people a year for the next 10 years. That's net migration. So, a lot of people leave, a lot of British people leave and retire to the sun or whatever they do. It actually means the population change is much greater than 200,000 a year. And I'm going to say this. I don't believe that's what people voted for. We didn't vote Brexit to carry on with immigration on a massive level. And certainly people didn't give Boris Johnson an 80-seat majority for it to carry on this way. And, by the way, those numbers all exclude what is happening illegally in the English Channel, which, by the way, has seen at least six boats cross today. Well, joining me to discuss this and perhaps some of the economic Implications of this is Jonathan Portis, Professor of Economics at King's College London and Senior Fellow for the UK in a Changing Europe, focusing on immigration and free movement. Jonathan, on the simple politics of it, do you get my point that a Brexit vote and an 80-seat Boris Johnson majority, there was a high expectation amongst people that numbers would fall substantially and they're not?
3: Um, Well, that's hard to say, Um, maybe among some people. But let's be clear. This was what the Conservative Manifesto promised. It promised a um, new immigration system that would level the playing field between Europeans and non-Europeans and allow skilled workers, um, people who qualify under the new system, which was part of a white paper that had been published before the election, um, would allow people to come um, when they have a job offer from an employer here at a particular skill level um, and at a particular salary, above average, you know, above £25,000 a year and with particular skills. So this is precisely what people were voting for if they voted Conservative in the last election. And those of us who've been writing uh, about these issues for many years um, said so quite clearly. Um, so you might not like the fact that, Uh, That there are, um, that the falling number of people coming from Poland, um, and the Baltic states and Romania has been at least in part offset by more people coming from India, Pakistan, and Nigeria. But that was precisely the system which the government said it was going to introduce before the election, said it, set out in the manifesto, and that the British public, so in that sense. Um, the British public did, basically, they did vote for this, didn't they? Well, Jonathan, you know, I was arguing
0: for a non-discriminatory immigration system for 15 years. I felt discriminating against the rest of the world in favour of the European Union was all wrong. Um, But I also argued, and I think Boris Johnson also argued, that once we have control of our own immigration policy that numbers can reduce. Anyway, I think people voted for Boris Johnson believing lower numbers. Now, I presume you're going to tell me that economically we're actually going to need these people.
3: Um, well, um, it's not a question of need. We don't have to have uh, immigration at this level. We could have lower immigration and be somewhat poorer and, indeed, higher immigration and be somewhat richer. That's a choice. But it is true that, this new, that the new system, which does reorientate the system slightly more towards more skilled and higher paid people, um, when they have a job offer for employers, um, that's on the whole. It's a relatively liberal system. um, Less restriction is towards people coming from outside Europe, and that is likely to have some economic benefits. And we're already seeing it. So what are the two big sectors where we've seen visa applications, particularly from people coming from India, Nigeria, the Philippines, go up? The two big sectors are the healthcare sector, where, of yep. course, we have massive staff shortages. It's not like they're displacing British people. We just don't have enough people working in the NHS and social care, and the IT sector. So there's big demand um, from uh, from the IT sector, and lots of people coming in to India for all that. I think it's very hard to argue that's not a good thing from an economic perspective that isn't, on balance, going to be good for the British economy, good for tax revenue, well- good for funding public services.
0: I mean, what we've seen with immigration over the years is it's good for GDP. More people means the GDP goes up. Doesn't always mean that GDP per capita goes up. But, Jonathan, thank you for joining us and giving us your thoughts on that. In a moment, coming up, the NHS waiting list, for the first time ever, hits six million and it's still rising fast. Also, Andrew, Prince Andrew, loses his royal titles. We'll discuss what that means, too. Let's get straight to your comments on oh, Chinese spy in the Palace of Westminster. Mick on Twitter says, We're too complacent on practically everything. Jonathan says, Absolutely, Nigel, they're not our friend. Jack says, Yes, 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 it's time to stop relying on China for cheap tat. We need to invest and rebuild our own heavy industry and manufacturing capabilities. A view that is now very popular in this country. One viewer says, this was always going to happen with our money-hungry politicians. Should look into every donor and let the public know who has been taking the Chinese coin. Another says, we let the CCP fund our universities and then steal our research. Complacent doesn't even begin to cover it. I have to say, I do rather agree with all of that. Now, an official press release out from Buckingham Palace in the middle of this afternoon, which says, with the Queen's approval and agreement, the Duke of York's military affiliations and royal patronages have been returned to the Queen. The Duke of York will continue not to undertake any public duties, and is defending this case as a private citizen, obviously referring to the Virginia Dufresne civil action case against him, which we discussed here on the show last night. Joining me to explain what all of this actually means is Ingrid Seward, Editor-in-Chief of Majesty Magazine.
4: Ingrid, good evening. Good evening, Nigel.
0: I guess this was kind of inevitable, wasn't it really?
4: Yes, I think it probably was because uh, we must remember that the Queen has really supported Andrew through all this i mean she you know as any mother would she obviously believes what he's told her um and they this is was not an immediate decision of this morning when we saw him driving to see her this would have been thought about and they've obviously agreed together i i would guess i don't know for sure that this is the only way forward and that he he has to well of course he had to relinquish his military appointments and his royal patronages. He absolutely had to, and I feel he should have done it sooner. But um, I think that the way forward is he he goes into defending himself as uh, not his Royal Highness Prince Andrew, but just Prince Andrew or the Duke of York. And it's easier situation. He cannot go on sort of scattering problems on the monarchy and and he understands that and that's what prince philip always said and this is what the queen has always said
0: so just to be clear he's still prince andrew he's still the duke of york but he's not his royal highness
4: well, his royal highness is an honorific, it's called an honorific, and it, it's ver- the royal family are very, very particular about titles, just like you and I are, Nigel, very particular about our titles. Absolutely. And, um, no, seriously, they are. Um, and whether or not this HOH goes into abeyance for the moment, or if it's forever gone, but... It doesn't alter the fact he's still a prince of the blood. He's still the Queen's second son. At one time, 20 years, you know, for 20 years, he was second in line to the throne after his elder brother, Prince Charles. So he's very royal. You can't yes. take that away, but he can't fight this court case, which obviously he's going to do, I would imagine, you know, being an HRH.
0: No. And finally, on the court case, Ingrid... Uh, Do you believe, as I do, that he's going to settle this financially out of court at a very, very large sum, but just to stop uh, many more very damaging and potentially embarrassing allegations?
4: Well, I did believe that, but I now wonder. I did believe that, because usually these court cases... These kind of cases are settled out of court because nobody mm. wants to be dragged through the mire. And whatever Virginia Gouffray says, I believe that her lawyers will probably be wanting, you know, some sort of payment. Um, and if it's settled, they will be paid, and everything will be, you know, sorted out. But if she really wants to pursue this, I am uh, not legally astute enough to know whether if she wants to pursue it, uh, she can just say to him, "No, I don't want to settle this case." But yeah. Historically, these cases are pretty well
0: always settled. Yeah, no, no, as you say, she can make that decision. Thank you very much indeed for coming on and explaining that to us, Ingrid Seward. Now, another story that really does matter to people and matters a lot to people are NHS waiting lists. And yes, they have hit six million for the first time. And many of these are not trivial. These are hip replacements, these are knee replacements, with people waiting, a good number of people waiting, well over a year. And it's difficult to see how this is going to be resolved, unless I've got this completely and utterly wrong. Well, joining me to discuss this problem, or should I say crisis, is Dr Peter Carter, an independent health consultant and former chief executive of the Royal College of Nursing. Peter, thank you uh, for coming back on the show. Um, It's a pretty ugly number, isn't it?
5: Yeah, um, very, very worrying. Um, A a record high, and we don't know how high it's going to get because we're certainly not through um, the the current difficulties. And uh, waiting lists are something which um, really perplexes the public. Uh, it's very very worrying um one of the things the blair government did and did well was to get it down to an average of nine weeks as a wait and now we're getting more and more examples of people in some of the conditions you've just mentioned uh having to wait over a year now in fairness and i think this is important because we don't want to spook your viewers um a typical wait is still about 11 and a half weeks so for a lot of people The things are not too bad, but when you get something like, and if you can indulge me just to give an example about a hip replacement, the longer you leave it, the more deterioration there is in the capsule. Uh, You get referred pain in the knee, and the surgery becomes more complex, and the rehabilitation is longer. Coupled with that, people will be off work, people will be in pain, uh, they get Mm. depressed agitated, uh, and it's a downward spiral. So anybody waiting for a hip or a knee and having to wait over a year, and I heard this morning of someone that is anticipated will take two years, um, this is very, very worrying indeed.
0: Yeah, and, and, and those that can afford it are, of course, going private to, to avoid that. But the other problem, Peter, I want to raise is it isn't just a six million waiting list for procedures. If we look at... Casualty, A&E, we see that over 25% of people are waiting over four hours to get seen. But perhaps more shockingly is the pressure, clearly, that the ambulance service is under, Uh, because it says that for emergencies, such as strokes and heart attacks, the average waiting time now for an ambulance is 53 minutes, not the 18 minutes that's recommended. So this problem... Goes right across every aspect of healthcare, doesn't it?
5: Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, you, you, we've got a healthcare system that is buckling under the strain. I mean, it really is very, very difficult. And um, you know that we've seen examples of elderly people who've fallen in their garden, having to wait eight or nine hours yeah. with uh, people putting blankets over them and uh, umbrellas up uh, to keep the rain off. Uh, and and th- this is the sad state of affairs that we've got. And people in A&E departments stacking up um, for hours. Uh, and it's not uncommon uh, to find in an A&E department, whilst m- many people will be through very, very quickly, there will be some people waiting 8, 9, 10, maybe 12 hours. And we're also seeing a re-emergence in some places, not everywhere, of people now having to be kept in chairs or on trolleys in corridors which is grossly unsatisfactory.
0: Peter Carter, it certainly is. Thank you for joining us. And a couple of quick thoughts from me on this growing health crisis. The first, of course, is when the population of your country rises by 8 million in 20 years, it's perhaps not surprising your public services simply can't cope. Second thought on this, very interesting. Looking at the numbers, it seems that Yorkshire and the North East... In terms of waiting times, in terms of ambulances, in terms of all healthcare, it seems that in Yorkshire and the North East, the situation is very much worse than the national average. Which says to me, levelling up for those red wall seats is not happening in healthcare in any way at all. Now, this morning, very exciting the launch of a new political party. That wonderful Remainer woman, Gina Miller, of course, who fought court cases and was very prominent in our media for some years. Yes, Gina Miller launched her new party this morning. Now, I have to say, it perhaps was not a wholly unqualified success. The QE2 centre in London had been booked. It was beautifully decked. Beautifully set up. Uh, It's the true and fair party. That's the party that she's launched. Uh, But unfortunately, only 13 people turned up to the launch. And it seems that the key parts, the really key parts of her manifesto, and there she is unveiling her manifesto, but the really key parts of it, namely to end paid lobbying by MPs and to introduce a new ministerial code enshrining... The Nolan principles, well, the trouble is, Gina, that those things are already in law. So I'm not so sure the true and fair party is going to go much further uh, than the launch today, given the overcrowded centre in British politics that we have at the moment. Um, And that certainly is right. Now, a little bit of good news, uh, which we need, I think, and that is the tech sector. And this really is important. This is where growth is coming in the 21st century. It's where America uh, has taken uh, the most extraordinary advance over the rest of the world. Well, the good news is that London last year kept up a blistering pace of technology financing, leading against all other European cities with nearly £19 billion of fresh investment coming as new funding in tech, double the levels of 2020, with firms across the entire UK raising in total about £30 That is according to a report from Capital's promotional company, London & Partners, and data provider Dealroom. So it really is very good news. We are now globally ranked fourth for these kind of investments. Yes, we're still trading behind San Francisco, New York and Boston, but I think it's really, really exciting that so much money is going into our tech sector, some of it from UK investors, some of it coming from America, um, and it's really good news, and it just says to all of those people who said with Brexit, oh, investment will all cease, they got it completely and utterly wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. All of which, I suppose, leads me in to our Talking Pints guest really rather well, because our Talking Pints guest... (laughs) Is somebody who invests in businesses. Somebody who I think has done rather well investing in businesses. He was for many years a star on Dragon's Den, well known for much that he's done in the retail sector, the charity sector. Lots to discuss in a moment on Talking Pines with Theo Pafitas. The It's that time of the day, the GB News Tavern has been opened and we're joined this evening by Theo Pafidus. Welcome to Talking Pints. Thank you, Nigel. Cheers. Cheers. Is that good? It's
6: lovely, thank you. I see you're on the hard stuff. Yeah,
0: just having a little bit of a rest, you know, a little bit of a rest. Now, Theo, I know, difficult subject, but Covid's been pretty blooming awful for you all round, hasn't it?
6: I'm a shopkeeper. It's been shopkeepers. We've been officially shut down for much of of last year.
0: And then, obviously, just before
6: Christmas, we got unofficially shut down, stealth-like, yes. when they put the frighteners on absolutely everybody. Yeah. And now you've got to work from home and you can only go to
0: work if you're going to party.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: that was a business meeting. Do you not believe the Prime Minister when he said that it was a business meeting? Well, he believes it. And, no, I don't think
6: he even believes it, yeah, in, in, right. in, in, in fairness. But Ryan station the stationers have got a new range in for next year. Yep. We're selling wine and cheese. Because there's obviously going to be a big demand. That's
0: offices need. Big demand for offices. (laughs) It's... I mean, I'm guessing a lot of retail businesses have just gone to the wall. Well,
6: many have, and our balance sheets have been shot blatantly, but many have had to really look at their model. problem is with retail at the moment, you've got two parts of retail. You've got the physical and you've got the online. The physical pays all the tax... And the online makes all the profit and sends it to the states. So, or somewhere else. Yeah. And the government still can't seem to grasp that business rates nettle that is damaging physical retail. And at some stage, and it might just be too late, someone's going to wake up and say... Oh, yeah, we've got this big piece of cake that's growing on this side and we've got this piece of cake that's getting smaller on this side and we're taxing the small piece of cake that's yeah. getting smaller and then we're realising we need more money, so we tax them even more and the piece of the cake that's getting bigger, we just leave alone. We don't bother with that. That's just ridiculous. We need to modernise our taxation And methods. corporation tax
0: going up is another problem, isn't it? Well, listen...
6: I don't mind... Corp- Listen, the, the corporation tax is an interesting one. And I've been asked this question many times before. I don't mind paying tax on profits. What I do mind is paying tax on property where you don't make profits or you don't know if you're going to make a profit. It's just an unfair tax. It's from the 1500s. And we're in a modern society, modern age. If we can't... We've changed the way we live. The way you live your life in the last... twenty Ten years, no mind twenty years, has totally changed. Yeah. Our taxation, the way we tax, has to change. And what we need is an adult government. At the moment, we've got the kids running riot, in Downing Street. We need adults
0: in charge. Now, you've been involved with many, many famous names, high street names, the Robert Dyer, and
6: all sorts. Ramin Stationers, Boo Avenue. Yeah. Go and keep going. Go. No, no, no. I mean, there's it's a long, long yes. list.
0: But you're known for being a bit of a guru when it comes to the retail sector and when it comes to the high street. And I love the high street. Because you meet people, there's a social element to it. There's a well, the real world, you mean? Yeah, yeah. I like, I like the real world yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been under it's been under terrible pressure even pre the pandemic, with as, you, as we've discussed already, the move to online. Can the high street survive?
6: Of course, it can survive, and it will survive. I mean, the point is, we just need to make sure we understand what we want out of life and we deal with it according to put legislation in, that's correct. People want to go out. And then we've got many of us... Look, we've got loads of stores that are doing well, and then we've got quite a few stores, especially in London, for instance, and metropolitan areas, where it's like a ghost town. Mm. You know, my chief executive was in the lift coming up in Covent Garden. Covent Garden tube station, I don't know if you know it, it's quite deep. There's a big lift that goes up. Normally it's packed, chick to gel, you're standing in there. He was the only person in the
0: morning in that lift. So is this work from home, you know? And I mean, this building we're in has got is full of corporate companies, but there's nobody here. Is work from home going to be a permanent thing? Is it a temporary thing? Is there a change of culture as a result of the pandemic? Well, that that is definitely uh, an issue. It could there could be. I think there's going to be
6: sort of hybrid. I think people will look to work sometime from home. And, you know, in some ways, I can live that, but there's certain industries, there's certain jobs that you... Especially when you're training and you're you're learning the job, you want to be amongst others. You want to hear what they're saying. Yeah. You know, what the... And for young people... people, To learn. To learn from older people. Yeah, I agree. And you've got to look at the, the, the serious issue of mental state... And, you know, if you're stuck it A lot of youngsters are in bedsits, sharing a flat, sharing a house, and their only space is their bedroom. Our guys and girls don't really want to work in their bedroom. Yeah. They, they, they want to get out.
0: Yeah, yeah. But we've got to be realistic. Well, I hope you're right. I, I do fear there has been something of a cultural change.
6: There has, uh, and I do believe, this is my personal view for what it's worth and it's worth exactly what you're paying, paying me to be here. Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but... The fact is, I do actually believe there will be a kickback towards people wanting to get out, which is why when things open up again, people are going to restaurants, they're spending more money in restaurants, they're spending more money in shops. We've got, in in our stores, we've got 22% less customers coming in. Yep. But the ones that are coming in are actually spending
0: more. Yeah, No, No. Well, that's good. I'm very pleased to hear it. Now, entrepreneur, you know, tuck shop at school when you're 15. On you go... Uh, and you really build a big name for yourself on Dragons Den. You're one of. I mean, you're there for episode after episode. I, I'm going to show you a quick clip. This oh, is Theopaphetus on Dragons Den. Let's have a look. I'll have a drink. To making such
6: claims, you'll always get the same reaction from one particular dragon. Ernie, 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 is it theo-proof?
0: Yes. So that's been tested to tag 750
6: kilograms. <laughs> So it should just uh, spring back. I'd move out of the way, mate. So at the moment, it does that. Yeah. If I went... Not bad. Video proof,
5: (laughs) tick. But there are plenty more dragon hurdles to clear before investment is secured.
0: That was the BBC's Dragon's Den, and you had great fun doing it, didn't you? Uh, I did. I did.
6: I'm very much a product man. I'm a shopkeeper. We, we, we have products, we buy products, we sell products. They're going to be fit for purpose. We want our customers to buy them. We don't really want them to bring them back, right? So we want to make sure they're fit for purpose and they do what we say they're going to do. And, and you know, I always like to test products. And if
0: they can't I fail, see. they fail. But there were some great successes that came out of Dragons. It
6: was fabulous. Eight, nine years, I can't remember now, but it was great fun. Uh, We had the good, the bad. Had some uglies as well, uh, where I lost my money very quickly. (laughs) Um, So there you go. Anyone says that don't lose money investing
0: is not telling you the truth.
6: No, of course. Never invested. Of course. You know, it's the risk... We're not gamblers. It's the risk-reward ratio. You, you, You have to assess... Uh, a business, and not all will go right. And and it's then up to the people. I mean, some people came on Dragons Den early on, especially early on, where they thought they won the lottery. And the minute they left there, they were going to put the fee up, light up a cigar, and we were
0: going to run their business for them. <laughs> Shock horror! Yeah. That's
1: not yeah. how it works.
0: Entrepreneurship. Yeah. I, I don't know about you. I look at the front bench of the Conservative Party, I look at the front... Hopefully and, not often. would well, try not to, but I look at the front bench of the Labour Party even less often. <laughs> um, I'm not sure we've got anybody running the country with any concept of entrepreneurship. Am I right about that?
6: I, I think you would come to that conclusion very quickly just by the things they've done. Look, this present Cabinet Government have been in power, what, a couple of years? Um, I mean, they've done nothing. Absolutely nothing. I can't say how disappointed I am and if they're listening today to this show, I can yeah. tell you I am incredibly disappointed. They've done nothing, delivered nothing. I mean, yes, some said, oh, we delivered Brexit. No, you didn't. You jumped off the cliff without a parachute, hoping it would be all right when you landed at the other side.
0: Right? And the opportunities that Brexit could give to small business with simplification of regulations, and, I mean, none of that's happened. There's been
6: it? nothing. Then there's been nothing at all. I mean, so we could, be, we could have been in the... You could have been in, in nowhere land. We've done... Since then, we've done nothing. Then we've got... COVID comes along. It's unfortunate. It's been, it's been a tough act for any, anybody yeah. being in government, I'm sure. But there comes a time where you have to put your hands up and you be, be realistic. Tell people the bad news as well as the good news straight up. People are realistic. They understand these things. But now it just feels that you just don't believe a word anybody from the government says. There's no integrity or honesty. And some of the stuff they're asking us now to believe, uh, quite honestly, just comes out of comic books. Mm. And, you know, you can, only, you can only... You can only say it so many times before you become a laughing stock. You're pretty scathing about them, aren't you? I, I, I'm just shocked. I'm just shocked. Especially recent events where, you know, if the guy... If they made a mistake and they did something that he disagreed with and it happened and a few people... Open a bottle of wine in the garden, but they were working. That's fine. Just say it. Okay. Put your hands up yeah. and just say right. and apologise. Move on. Yeah. Don't run this sh- shaggy dog story that I goes on. I drove 25 on on. miles to test my eyesight. Oh, yeah, well, that's another one. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 we, we need it. I, I'm saying it on it right now. We need to get a grip. It's not too late, but we need to get a grip. Pretty and we've got to absolutely show some honesty, integrity, because that's what the country now needs. And leadership, we need leadership. We can't just say, have a Christmas party, don't have a Christmas party, not
0: sure whether you should isolate, maybe you should isolate. I mean... I know, God. I know, I, know, I, know. No, I I get it. And Now, before the break, before you came on, I did a little story about UK tech. The UK tech sector, money is flooding in. Yep. The UK tech sector, we're miles behind San Francisco Bay, but... Money's flooding in, some of it's British investors, a lot of American investors, putting money into the country. I still feel that despite government not understanding business, wanting to help business, despite not taking advantage of Brexit in a way that we could... There's still a lot of entrepreneurial flair in this country, isn't there? This country... What was it? Little fella. French bloke. Yeah.
6: Napoleon. That was him. What did he say about... Nation of shopkeepers. Nation of shopkeepers. What's a shopkeeper? It's an entrepreneur. They start a business, and this country's full of it. I mean, uh, that spirit's been installed in me, not from my parents. My parents uh, were, were humble people, but just... Well, my surroundings have been in the UK. I came in as an immigrant in 1966. Mm-hmm. And just by meeting people, talking to people, seeing the opportunities and everything that's there, this has been a great country for entrepreneurs and should remain so. we are going to make sure we don't lose that spark.
0: Yeah, and we can make it even better. That's, Absolutely. That's how I feel about it. Now, a separate side of your life, which I bet many of the viewers don't know about, is your love of sport and your love, in particular, of football. Now... There's one football club that possibly unfairly... Has Much been, maligned. Gets Much a, maligned. In fact, I, I remember when I led UKIP, I did once compare it to Millwall Football Club. <laughs> <laughs> No-one likes us, we don't care. Exactly. But you were chairman of Millwall for years. I was.
6: Um, again, eight years, most amazing eight years of my life. Uh, loved every last minute of it. Again, we had the highs and the lows, the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, I remember... Uh, there became chairman, my brother ringing me up and saying, Are you sure? Yeah. Millwall Football Club, do you remember? <laughs> um, because we used to go there as kids. He said, and something awful happened to him once. And uh, they said, do you he said, They're going to string your life. I said, I don't think so. And do you know what? It was just an amazing time. Uh, I met some of the most wonderful people. Um, and it was for me, it was a life's ambition, it was a dream. And I wouldn't wouldn't have changed it for the world. And you had some success, wasn't you, were Chairman? We had lots of success. We got to Wembley. We got we we got promoted. We got to an FA Cup final. Yeah. We qualified for Europe for the first time in our history. So we had lots and lots of fun.
0: Yeah. Um, but Millwall still today. I mean, a- Game a couple of weeks ago against Crystal Palace. Ah, oh, I remember her. Which turned pretty ugly. Um, what, Crystal Palace? I couldn't agree
4: with you more. No, no, no. I couldn't agree with you
0: more. No, no, you're doing a Boris there's, Johnson. There's a song about that, isn't it? <laughs> palace, Palace, who, are Palace? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're doing a Boris Johnson now and trying to deflect you... and defer. The fact is, once again, Millwall fans have behaved in a way okay. that has slightly brought the club into disrepute. So what, what has, happened? Well, what ha- what, what it was chanting at players, and it was pretty nasty stuff, apparently.
6: OK, so I spent... Uh, the guy I got, was his name? Campbell Alistair. Yeah. Do you remember him?
0: I certainly do. Burnley supporter. Yep. Yeah, Director it? of Burnley,
6: I think, yeah. Oh, I'm not, I can't remember who was the director of Burnley, but he certainly used to come to the matches when we played Burnley. Yep. But, you know, he heard all sorts of chants... At, uh, at the den, um, which was quite amazing because nobody else heard heard those particular chants. And in one, one particular instance, while I was there, I'm just using some of the much maligned. I'm not saying Millwall Football Club supporters haven't been guilty, like many, many other club supporters of overstepping the mark, yeah. right? And I can you name any club, and I'll find you a situation yeah, yeah, where. Yeah, yeah. But when it happens at Millwall, yeah. it's news. It's an earthquake, and. There was a situation um, uh, a few years back where I opened my uh, red-top newspaper and, my God, there was the headlines about Millwall supporters uh, chanting Nazi chants. Mm. I thought, oh, my God, when was this? On Saturday, I was there. I thought, I didn't, see, I, I didn't yeah. hear any of that. And this guy wrote this whole article and we were playing Brighton. And he mistook seagulls, um, which was the Brighton... Right, yeah, 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 yeah. ..for something <laughs> else. And, it, and this article got printed. Yes, we got a retraction, we got an
0: apology, <laughs> but, but it was instantly accepted that this must be true. Is that the price we pay for having a free press and free speech? And well, I suppose
6: it is, and we've got regulators and majority... And generally... You know, when the press has shown that they've got something wrong, sensible newspapers yeah. will retract. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and, and this particular red top did, yeah. and they did a nice article and everything else. So the problem is anything that happens at Millwall is, yeah. is exaggerated, magnified. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was... I saw, I saw there was... You missed the bit that there was a, a soft drinks bottle that was thrown on the pitch. Mm. OK? Yeah. 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 But that's happened every week for the last... God knows how many weeks at Premier League grounds.
0: Yeah. But that hasn't been reported. But it's Millwall, isn't it? I get, Millwall. it. So, I get it. No, so, I'm... yes, they're not angels. Yes, they overstep the mark sometimes. But well, no more than a lot of other clubs. Very spirited defence of Millwall. Now, the Theo, you've been very successful, you've done well, you've made money, and you've clearly now want to give a little bit back. Just tell us a little bit about your charitable foundation and what it does.
6: Oh, wow. OK, I didn't come talk about that. but well, that's uh, important. It, it is. Look, look, we do lots of things. that We support mainly kids uh, Onside is one of the place, things and um, charities that wasn't proposed, charities that we support. Yep. Um, we uh, supported Comic Relief for many, many years. Um, and it's for us, raising money within the organisation and the business is an important thing, but it's our way of giving things back. But, but actually, I feel guilty sometimes because for all the money, and we have raised millions and millions and millions of pounds, for all that money we raised, quite honestly, we've had a lot more back because the ability for all our colleagues, and there's four and a half thousand of us, Mm. to work together, to drive together to one thing and join in. And the benefits of that gives back to us
0: all. And team building. And team building.
6: It's far in excess of anything that we actually give to other people.
0: Interesting. Interesting. As you look to the future, are you optimistic? Um, uh, Optimistic. I'm nervous. I'm nervous.
6: I think uh, maybe it's my age and, uh, uh, at the moment. But, but there's also excitement there and there's an opportunity because we are in a transformation period at the moment. There's lots of things changing. And if we get the right support, by, by right support, I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about legislation, yeah. the environment that we need, it's really exciting. My nervousness is I just don't want to throw it away.
0: Couldn't agree more. And waste it. Theo Bufidus, thank you for joining me on Pleasure. Talking Pints. Great thank stuff. You. We are approaching the end of the show. It is that time for Barrage the Farage. You send your questions in. I don't get to see them beforehand. Well, I've kept Theo here because he's a quick thinker. He might save me. Ian and Lucy ask... Have you ever been to a party... <laughs> well, I've been to lots of parties. ..that was so bad, you thought it was a work meeting instead? Look, I think, you know, as we said earlier, the whole thing, just a nonsense, not believable, ridiculous. We'll see what Sue Gray reports over the course of the next couple of weeks. Susie asks, Sunat Truss or other for the next PM? Any thoughts? Ooh, I think there's a couple of others as well.
6: Jeremy Hunt, we forgotten about him? Well... Solid. Remainer. Safe. But is that now history? Oh, that's history. Forget that. We've moved on from that. Yeah,
0: yeah. More experience. Interesting one. There we are. Hannah asks, Do you have any plans to write any more books? Do you know, I keep thinking about writing a book um, about Brexit, uh, about 2019, all the remarkable things that happened. I just haven't got round to it yet, but at some point, I will. Mick asks, Boris is finished. Prince Andrew is down and out. The question is, who will be the third? That is such a depressing, miserable question. I'm just not even going to answer it. I
6: think you're safe. This show's doing really well. I think you're safe for a bit
0: longer. This show's okay. We're going to survive. That's great news. You see, I always thought there was an optimist deep there in Theo Thanks ever so much, everybody. I'm going to be back with you on Monday evening at 7. Please have a great weekend. In a moment, Mark Stein. First, though, let's see what the weather is going to throw at us.